0: Tonight we land in the book of Deuteronomy. Now I know that every pastor says that every passage that he preaches and every book that he's preaching from is his favorite, but Deuteronomy really is my favorite book in the Old Testament for a variety of reasons. I hear a lot of times pastors and teachers of the Bible say that the book of Leviticus is the most important book in the Old Testament. I would argue that the book of Deuteronomy is the most important book in the Old Testament for a variety of reasons. One, the book of Deuteronomy summarizes the four books that come before it. The book of Deuteronomy provides a summary of the history of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Where we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy is near the end of Moses' life, with a new generation, the next generation of Israelites being born. And much of the book of Deuteronomy is about providing that next generation with a handbook as to how they can walk with God absent the personal presence of Moses in their life. Moses has operated as this mediator between God and man. Moses and Aaron, functioning as the priest and prophet of God, have been very hands-on. They have been directly involved in the leadership of Israel. But there is a new generation arising within the nation of Israel. And Moses gives into their hands in the book of Deuteronomy a manual, a handbook on walking with God. And even for future generations, a manual for renewing the covenant that God made with the generation of Moses. The rest of the historical books of the Old Testament with the lone exceptions of first and second chronicles are really in many ways an expansion on what is being taught in the book of Deuteronomy in other words the theology the ethics the systems that are implemented in the book of Deuteronomy are unfolding in the books of judges and first and second samuel and first and second kings I'll show you in detail what I mean by that later, but the language of Deuteronomy is consistent throughout those historical books of the Old Testament. So history is being told, the history of Israel is being told in Deuteronomic terminology. The prophets who give us, the former prophets, who give us the early history of Israel as a nation are giving us a Deuteronomic perspective on the early history of Israel. Again, I'll speak more specifically to that later in our time together. And then when you come to the latter prophets in the Old Testament, the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, even over to Malachi, and books like Amos and Hosea, what those books really represent are expositions of Deuteronomy. You think for a moment, when revival came under Josiah, the child king of Judah, it came when they rediscovered the law. But a closer look at the description of that revival that came was they found the book of Deuteronomy. The book of the law is the book of Deuteronomy. The rediscovery of the book of Deuteronomy is the source of revival in Israel in the time of of Josiah. It is difficult to overstate the critical importance, the central role that the book of Deuteronomy plays in both the Old and the New Testament. It is among the most quoted books from the Old Testament in the New Testament. When New Testament authors seek to quote the Old Testament, they often go to the book of Deuteronomy. Isaiah is quoted more often and the Psalms are quoted more often, but Deuteronomy is quoted frequently in the New Testament. It plays a Central role, and for that reason and others, it is one of my favorites in the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy is largely a record of the speeches of Moses delivered shortly before his death and east of the Jordan. So, before the nation of Israel is going to cross over the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua, the protege of Moses, he gathers together the people of Israel to give them these instructions. It is the record of a covenant renewal ceremony on the plains of Moab where Israel once affirmed its allegiance to God and its national commitment to keeping the law. This is a rededication service that Moses calls the people of Israel to, and the details of that rededication service are recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. In some sense, Deuteronomy is the last will and testament of Moses, Preparing the people of Israel for two great events in her history. One, the death of Moses and the life without him that will inevitably follow. And two, for the conquest of the promised land. Remember, in times past, they've sent over the spies and they came back with a report that said we cannot take the land. Now they've wandered in the wilderness for these years for their unbelief. Moses is readying the people of Israel to enter in and to truly conquer the land that flows with milk and honey, the land that God had promised and provided for them. There are major sections in the Book of Deuteronomy, like other books in the, like other parts of the first five books of the Bible, that are given to the governance of Israel after Moses's death. How courts and systems are set up what laws will be enforced, and what laws are to be in place, In place, and even the penalties for the violation of those laws, the priestly system, and how the Levites are to function, and stipulations are given for the carrying out of life and the war that is to come, the war that is a part of the conquest that they'll be a part of. There's some really interesting history, some background on the book of Deuteronomy. It follows after a specific pattern. This won't likely ring your bell but it's significant for students of the bible specifically in the field of biblical studies there have always been efforts at folks coming along and along and suggesting that books of the bible were written far later than what they uh, alleged to have been written one, one of the earliest portions of the bible to come under the attacks of higher criticism and liberal theologians was the books of moses the speculation was there's no way moses wrote these books They bear indications of a much later time. Surely someone has imposed their convictions and they have edited these texts. Although there may be uh, some bits that are ancient, they must be much later texts. What more recent scholarship has discovered is that they actually follow an ancient pattern, a pattern contemporary to the life and times of Moses. Archaeologists have discovered certain covenants and the structure of those covenants from among the Hittite people. Who lived in the patriarchal period follow after the pattern that is established for us in the book of Deuteronomy, and that pattern is reflected in the outline that's included in the notes that are before you. As I mentioned a moment ago, the book is made up of three long speeches given by Moses to Israel on the plains of Moab, and each address begins with its location and setting. I want us to look briefly at each of these three speeches. The first of them comes. In chapter 1 and verse 5, east of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, this particular sermon or speech focuses on Israel's past. The first few chapters, in fact the first four chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, what you have is a summary of those first four books of the Bible. Moses is telling the history of Israel. Deuteronomy 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, "...these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Di, Zahab. It is an 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by way of Mount Seir. In the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first of the month, Moses told the Israelites everything the Lord had commanded him to say to them. This was after he defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, at Edri across the Jordan in the land of Moab because Moses or uh, in the land of Moab Moses began to explain this law saying and he begins to recount for them their history if you look over to chapter 4 and verse 9 I've given you in your outline some passages that sort of encapsulate the substance of each of these three speeches the first is in Deuteronomy 4 9 through 14 the focus of these verses is that they would remember That they would not forget where they came from And how god had intervened in their history to deliver them from their egyptian bondage The bible says in verse 9 only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves So that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that you don't slip from your mind So that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live teach them to your children and your grandchildren The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and may instruct their children. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens and enveloped in a dense black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of words, but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. At that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you statutes and ordinances for you to follow in the land you're about to cross into and possess. The message here is remember, do not forget. If We're to personalize or draw application for our present experience from what Moses describes in the passage. It would run closely along the lines that Moses has described here, that you would not forget, that you would remember where you came from. Not in Egyptian bondage, but very much in bondage to sin and self and the consequences of our dreadful decisions. And God has by faith delivered us from that bondage. He has made us his own. He has, by the Spirit of God, written His law on our very hearts. No longer tablets of stone, but tablets of flesh. God has indwelt our very being with His presence by the blood of Jesus. Never forget this. Not only is it urgent that we not forget where we come from, what God has done for us, but it's urgent that we instill these principles in the children God entrust to our care that for the next generation, they know know full well who we were and who we are now in Christ. It is incredibly important that the principles that we observe in Christ be entrusted to those that come after us. There's, There's a keen sensitivity in the law, by law I mean Genesis to Deuteronomy, that with each generation that passes there's a great danger of forgetting what God has done in their past. I, I I look at my kids. God radically saved me, but he radically saves everyone, right? But there's a bit of a difference in the way my boys understand grace and the power of God to transform the life and the way I understand that. Thank God they they have never lived the life that I lived, and I pray to God they, they never do. But there's an added element of difficulty in helping them to understand the power of God's grace to deliver from utter darkness because they've had the tremendous benefit of living at least in proximity to the light all of their life. With each generation that passes, there's an increasing level of difficulty at instilling remembrance and these principles of grace in the generations that come after. For this reason, Moses would say again and again and again, be careful that you remember and speak of what God has done in the past. Remember Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, is only a couple of chapters away. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Remember this, celebrate this, talk about this with your children when you rise up and when you sit down as you go about your day. May they be as frontlets before your forehead and as bound upon your wrist. Remember what God has done and remember His instruction, all of those commands. The exhortation that is the Shema is a caution sign that your children can quickly forget of what God has done in your life and the power of grace sufficient for them, a grace they need just as much as those who came before them. Later in chapter 4 in verse 32, the focus turns from remembering to highlighting the great privilege that Israel enjoys as a nation. And I would add it's a privilege that we enjoy as well. Verse 32, the Bible says, indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you from the day God created man on the earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything like this great event ever happened? Or has anything like it been heard of? Has a people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you have and lived? Or has a God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war by a strong hand? And outstretched arm by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. He showed his great fire on the earth and you heard his words from the fire. Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance as is now taking place. Today, recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below there is no other. Keep his statutes and commands which I'm giving you today so that you and your children after you may prosper and so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Moses says, in essence, God has spoken. He has given you his word what other nation had experienced such a remarkable encounter with the god of heaven moses asked what other god has vacated his heavenly abode and come to search out to seek and to save a people all his own establishing a nation uniquely his holy by virtue of his presence in their midst Who else has heard the voice of God as speaking forth from the fire and lived to tell of it? And yet God had spoken in that way to the nation of Israel. And we've yet to have the experience of God speaking forth from the fire the way Israel does. But by the power of His Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of His Spirit, we have been privileged with this unique level of access to His very Word. I can remember as a relatively young ministry hearing a sermon on this passage. I believed in the inerrancy of the Bible. I loved the Bible. Even as an unbeliever, I had a reverence from the Bible, a reverence I'd learned from my grandmother. You didn't put the Bible on the floor, and you didn't treat a Bible poorly. You took care of a Bible if you had one. I didn't read it, but you took care of it. There was a certain degree of reverence that you had for the Scripture. And I I can even remember some strange conversations with other lost friends about throwing open the Bible and finding a Bible verse that spoke to the situation that I had in mind when I opened the Bible. Now, that's not a good Bible reading plan, but sometimes God in his great mercy is considerate of our foolishness, our weakness, and our ignorance and speaks in some mysterious way. Sometimes God is pleased to accommodate our ignorance. He did for me on numerous occasions before coming to faith. I came to faith with a reverence for the Bible. But I can just remember walking away from that sermon with a, just a, an amazement, a shock, at the reality that God has spoken. We have His Word, and yet we live. We're not cut down, killed in an instant at the reading of His Word. This powerful, Spirit-inspired Word preserved by His good providence, alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, we've been given this incredible access, volumes and volumes, library after library of written works, but there is no book like the book of God, the words of God, the grass withers and its flower fades away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. This is what's been entrusted to our care, walking away from that meeting with such a feeling of weight and an understanding of the gravity of treating the text of the bible and the pulpit the sacred desk and the incredible responsibility that comes with that and yet so many treat the bible in such a cavalier manner i don't i just don't i don't i don't get it if your passion for the reading of the bible if your earnestness to understand and to treasure the scripture is waning i would remind you tonight that God has spoken forth from the fire and we have lived to tell about it and that's an experience we ought not to discount. Moses reminds them of the preciousness of God's word of what God has done in their past delivering them from this bondage but at the same time that he has provided for their future in the instruction of his word. The second sermon or speech that comes in the book of Deuteronomy begins in verse 44 of the same chapter, chapter 4. The text simply reads, In the valley near Beth Peor, east of the Jordan. This is where Moses begins to focus on the future. If you look over to chapter 7, verses 12 through 26, here's sort of a snapshot of the content of that second sermon. Moses recounts their history in chapters 1 through 4 in order to prepare them for what lies ahead, namely their invasion of the promised land and the supernatural conquering of the nations that currently inhabit that land. Now, they've been afraid in the past. So before they move forward, Moses would remind them of the powerful ways he has been at work or moved on their behalf, delivering them from their Egyptian bondage in the past the basic message of this section of deuteronomy is that they would not fear chapter 7 verse 12 the bible says if you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances the lord your god will keep his covenant loyalty with you as he swore to your fathers he will love you bless you and multiply you he will bless your descendants and the produce of your land your grain new wine and oil the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks in the land he swore to your fathers that he would give you. You'll be blessed above all peoples. There'll be no infertile male or female among you or your livestock. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He'll not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples. The Lord your God is delivering over to you and not look on them with pity. Do not worship their gods, for they will be a snare to you. If you say to yourself, These nations are greater than I. How can I drive them out? Don't be afraid of them. Be sure to remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt, the great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the strong hand and outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do do the same to all the peoples you fear. The Lord your God will also send the, the hornet against them until all the survivors and those hiding from you perish. Don't be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, a great and awesome God, is among you. The Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You'll not be able to destroy them all at once, otherwise the wild animals will become too numerous for you. The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. He'll hand their kings over to you and you'll wipe out their names under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you. You'll annihilate them. You must burn up the carved images of their gods, don't covet the silver and gold on the images and take it for yourself or else you'll be ensnared by it, for it is abhorrent to the Lord your God. You mustn't bring any abhorrent thing into your house, or you'll be set apart for destruction like it. You are to, be, you are to utterly detest and abhor it, because it is set apart for destruction. One, one of the things that you'll find skeptics pointing to in the Old Testament is referenced here, is the treatment of these nations. God instructs Israel to annihilate the nations that inhabit the land of Canaan. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Ammonites, they are to be driven out by the people of Israel. Most of the time, the skeptic reads these passages as though God is arbitrarily eradicating a nation uh, in order to plant Israel within that land. But I, I would remind you that we only have part of the story. We have a somewhat biographical account of the experiences of Israel, but it is not as though God was not actively at work in those neighboring nations. There's a verse that often comes to mind. We read a passage from the book of Jonah Sunday morning that was really an echo or allusion to Genesis 15, 16, where where God says that he's not yet going to bring judgment on the Ammonites, for they have not yet filled up their sin or completed their sin. In other words, God's long-suffering, his Patience with those people had not reached its end. There was opportunity, there was occasion for their repentance. What's, what's interesting to me about the skeptics' look at the Old Testament and wagging the finger at God as though there's some unnecessary or arbitrary genocide happening against these people is that no one seems to have issue with God using the nation of, or the empire of Babylon as the sword of judgment against the people of Israel. This is merely the reversal of that experience. Israel is now the sword of judgment in God's hand against those nations inhabiting the land of Canaan. What's prescribed for them here is precisely the judgment, the experience that Israel would have at a later date in its history when they defy the Lord, give themselves to idolatry, and disobey the stipulations of the covenant, even the covenant accounted for here in the book of Deuteronomy. There is no people, there is no place that are free from judgment when it comes to sin against the holy God. We only get one side of the story here. But even as God brings the nation of Israel in in salvation, he's at work simultaneously exacting judgment and bringing justice against those nations who until now inhabited the promised land. Moses encourages them to remember how God had delivered them in times past. The, the greatest world power in the days of the Exodus was the Egyptian Empire. Now they're to go up against the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all those ites that you read about in the Old Testament. They're formidable enemies, in some cases quite strong. The Hittite Empire was a vast and strong at least militarily, strong empire in the days of people of Israel under the leadership of Joshua. But they were small in comparison to the Egyptian empire and its chariots and well-trained officers and all of the advancements in military technology enjoyed within the Egyptian empire. Moses says, remember what God did. He'll do it again. And not only will he do it, but he'll do it in just the way that best suits your inhabiting the promised land in just the way he'd intended. It won't happen overnight. Moses said, if all of these people were eradicated in a day, the wild animals would overwhelm the forest before the people of Israel could inhabit well established cities within the promised land. He'll do it bit by bit, incrementally, over time, through the steady faithfulness of his people. Do not fear. The third speech in the book of Deuteronomy begins in chapter 29. It happens in Moab as 29:1 describes it. 29 comes I mean this is deep bible insight but chapter 29 comes right after chapter 28. And chapter 28 describes the stipulations of the covenant by that i mean if you obey these are the blessed things you'll experience if you disobey these are the cursed things you'll experience that marks sort of the end of a certain cycle that's unfolding in the book of Deuteronomy and that 28th chapter is the chapter that informs so much of the teaching of the old testament it shapes the way the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel and First and Second Kings is told. For instance, Moses promises by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if you will obey the Lord, if you will keep the covenant, that God will be with you. He will be with you. He promises them in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if they keep the covenant, their children will prosper and their livestock will prosper in terms of their fertility. And he promises in Deuteronomy 28 that if they will keep the covenant, that God will give them victory in battle. So the signals in 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings and Judges can be thrown into this mix as well. That someone is walking with the Lord, that they're keeping the covenant, is that God gives his presence. He is with them. And God gives them oftentimes many children, And God will give them victory in battle. Think of the early chapters of 1 Samuel, for instance. The Ark of the Covenant comes to be the symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people. When 1 Samuel opens, it opens with an explanation of the foolishness of Eli and the wickedness of his sons. This is the priestly line in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. The description is of a religious establishment that is given over altogether to immorality, that is far from God. The covenant is being violated by those in positions of leadership. And what happens in those initial chapters? The Philistines come and they steal the Ark of the Covenant and they carry it away. And the people of Israel grieve, understanding the implications of that great theft. The presence of God had left the people of Israel, in their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Later, as David rises to power with each scene or episode in David's life, describing his movement as king of Israel, and uh, first king of Judah, and then king of Israel, and ultimately king of a united nation, is a list of the sons that are born to David in each of the locations he reigns from. He reigns from Hebron, and there's a list of his children an indication of David's faithfulness in this episode of his life and he rules from Jerusalem and the list of children born to David is given there for us an indication of God's favor and blessing on the life of David and then there's the Bathsheba incident and what happens as a consequence of David's covenant unfaithfulness with Bathsheba they lose a child not only does Deuteronomy shape the, the positive statements of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Joshua, the history of the Old Testament, the reversal of the covenant unfolds when the people of God wander away. When they're faithful, God is with them and he blesses them in incredible ways. One of the signposts of his blessing is the bearing of children, the fruitfulness of their flocks, their success in battle. Think even of the book of Joshua, it was shaped by Deuteronomic theology, the teachings of the book of Deuteronomy. The people of Israel are faithful to the covenant, and God is with them, giving them great victory. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. But with the covenant unfaithfulness of Achan, taking from the accursed things of the city of Jericho, bearing them within the depth of his tent, the very thing in Deuteronomy 7, God says you must not do, they're sent scurrying and lives are lost at AI for their covenant unfaithfulness. The stipulations of the covenant are given in Deuteronomy chapter 28, a reminder that your faithfulness or unfaithfulness comes with consequences. Now, there are other books in the Old Testament that are shaped in significant ways by the book of Deuteronomy. I have just said to you that the book of Deuteronomy teaches, and this is true on some level, well, it's just true. If you will obey the covenant, you will be blessed. If you disobey the covenant, you will be cursed. The book of Job finds its place in the Old Testament in order to make a helpful qualifying note that just because you are blessed does not mean that you've been faithful. Nor does it mean that just because you are cursed, you have been unfaithful. It's true in one direction, but it's not true read backwards. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. But that does not mean that all who are blessed have been obedient. Nor does it mean that all who are cursed have disobeyed. And Job stands as this volume in the Old Testament to remind us, to help us to make this careful qualification that we understand the doctrines of the book of Deuteronomy in the right direction, not upside down. That, that, that may seem subtle. There may be some play on words in the way that's stated, but it's the difference between a healthy biblical theology and the perversion that is the prosperity gospel so popular in our day and age. Blessedness does not always mean faithfulness. Cursedness does not always mean unfaithfulness. But you can rest assured that there are always blessings that attend our faithful obedience to the command of God in the same way you can rest assured that there are always cursed outcomes when we deviate from the path or the plan that God has established for us. In Deuteronomy 29, immediately after those consequences have been outlined for the people of Israel, Moses gives the people of Israel these instructions as to how they're to renew the covenant. This is a rededication ceremony. There was a few years window of time in there when I would hear preachers say things, it was a shot at sort of like the old revival methods, that that rededication is not in the Bible. It, it used to, and even for me, and I'm not 100 years old, I remember people rededicating their life in an invitation time in a service. Some of you are nodding because you... You remember observing that as well. Sort of a shot at that. And, and I think that can be a quite healthy thing so long as it includes a genuine godly sorrow and repentance of our sin. I don't, like, I don't know what the problem is. I never got what, what's the issue there. It's a, is this a terminology thing? Because it seems a healthy thing that from time to time we are reminded of what God has done for us in the past and we renew our commitment to the things of God. I, I am all. I am for every day of my life is about battling drift. When I, when I feel like I've got it going on over here and one particular year I finally get it worked out, I look up to note that I've completely neglected this other part of my life. Things are good in one department. You look over here and everything's crazy. We, we are given to this kind of drift not just in the practical areas of our life but regar- with regards to our spiritual life as well. Sometimes it happens unwittingly. We don't even know that it's happening until we've wandered far from God. And it takes a a Nathan-like experience for someone to say, you are the man to snatch us out of our spiritual days and to fix our attention back on the things of Jesus. The remainder of the book of Deuteronomy is about providing a framework for gathering the people of Israel generation by generation and renewing their commitment to the Lord. When, Josiah, when they find the book of the law in the days of Josiah, this must have been a manual, a handbook for them, providing instruction as to how they were to proceed, recommitting themselves to the things of God. Look to chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant he made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to his entire land. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see or ears to hear. I led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes and the sandals on your feet didn't wear out. You didn't eat bread or drink wine or beer so that you might know that I am Yahweh your God. When you reached this place... Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us in battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, observe the words of this covenant and follow them, so that you will succeed in everything you do. All of you are standing today before the Lord your God, your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your children and your wives, the foreigners in your camps who cut your wood and draw your water so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, so that you may enter into his oath and so that he may establish you today as his people and he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm making this covenant and this oath not only with you, but also with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here today. With every generation, there must be a renewed commitment to the things of God. Nobody gets into the kingdom because of the faith of their father. Nobody gets into the kingdom because of the faith of their grandparents. Our faith in Jesus is not something we receive by inheritance or in some genetic type of way. Our place in the kingdom is not something received by virtue of where we live or the church that we grow up in, but a personal commitment to follow after Jesus, to walk in his footsteps. This kind of pattern is established for Israel here in these chapters. And Moses seeks and God seeks to see this followed after generation by generation by generation. For us, it is a new covenant that we enjoy and enter into the presence of God by. Not a covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai, but a covenant that God has made in heaven, signed and sealed by the blood of his son, Jesus. It is something of a strange twist of, well, it's just strange, that a book given to historical record would be such a powerful reminder of the need to evangelize our children and our grandchildren and those who come after us, to, to make it the passion of our heart to see that the next generation and the next generation and the next commit themselves to the things of God for all of their days. Remember what God has done for you in times past. Be emboldened by that remembrance that what he's done in the past he'll continue to do in the future. Paul cast it this way in Romans 8.32. How will he, who did not spare his own son for us, not lavish us with all things in his son, Jesus Christ? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance to spend these moments tonight together in the study of your word. We're reminded tonight, God, of what you did in Israel's history. And I pray that we've been reminded of what you've done in the history of our own lives personally. God, help us to walk with you. Help us, Lord, that our children would likewise walk with you. Help us to remember and instill the principles of the faith in those that come after us. God, I pray that you would do this beyond our ability, beyond our meager contributions, that you would guard the next generation from our errors, that you would guard our children from our shortcomings, help them not to see the glaring discrepancies in who we often say we are and the shortcomings in our life, but to see your hand at work sovereignly. In spite of who we are and what we've done, you have saved and are at work to sanctify. God, I, I pray that you would help us to hide the principles of these, uh, this word, these texts, away in our heart. That in the days ahead we might be emboldened and likewise not sin against you. We ask it in Jesus' name.